This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. I'm Paul Newton from the Cambridge Assessment Network Division, which is a division that sets on up these seminars. This is a seminar in the current issues and assessment series. Okay, today's seminar is going to be led by Vera Birmingham, and we're very grateful to you, Vera, for coming along to talk to us. Um, Vera is an expert in all aspects of equality and diversity. Uh, She's based in Kingston Law School, which is in Kingston University. Um, And her main area of research is legal education and access to the legal profession. Uh, I came across Vera's work for the first time last year while I was looking through assessment and evaluation in higher education uh, because she and a few colleagues had published a paper on plagiarism in UK law schools. And I thought particularly with uh, uh, anecdotes of uh, plagiarism having hammered the final nail in the coffin of coursework recently. That would make an excellent topic for uh, one of our seminars. As it happens, Vera is no stranger to um, pre-university examinations, since she's one of the authors of a major textbook on A-level law. Uh, And she also conducted a major investigation into A-level law examinations during the early 1990s. So Vera, you've got a unique perspective to bring this to us today with uh, and we're very much looking forward to hearing your insights into what's happening on the streets so to speak so thank you very thank you Paul good afternoon everyone um, I'd, I'd like to start by saying why I got interested in this issue and um, I'm director of the undergraduate law programs at Kingston and a finding of academic misconduct on a law student's file has really serious uh, implications for their career because the professional bodies are so concerned about anything to do with fraud or dishonesty that it's, um, it's a serious matter. And also um, all this anecdotal evidence about the extent to which plagiarism is taking place and then about pe- how people were dealing with it. Um, some people, I heard, were de- just reducing uh, marks, depending on the amount of unref- um, unreferenced work, where other people were putting it into a formal procedure. So um, most of the debate at that time, and I think it's happening with A-level law now, was on about what plagiarism, what plagiarism is, what are the methods of plagiarism, how to avoid it, you know, all the information about set the assessment this way, do, you know, set particular questions. And a huge amount of effort is invested in that. And the, that, that was at, uh, you know, a, a general level, but at an institutional level, the institutions were talking about the, the um, deterrence um, what, what can we do to deter students, uh, detection and punishment. So we, when I did the research here, um, I, I can't remember the percentage of institutions that were actually using Turnitin. Um, I think at this point, there are about 90, 97 uh, higher education institutions that use Turnitin. Now, just on that point, uh, before we go too much further... Turnitin is, there's a cost involved to the institution, but it's very time-consuming for staff time, submitting this work uh, through Turnitin for the purposes of detection. And then there was the the penalties that were available. And what I found interesting was 
there was very little focus on uh, the levels of detection. You know, I mean, I just, from the institutions I've been involved with as an external examiner and as an examiner, is that some modules never seem to have any. Some modules find quite a number of cases every year. And um, the, the, the procedures for dealing with suspected misconduct, and this was the thing really that uh, I think really the factor that influenced us in doing this research because uh, some people would say if there was 20% of the work unreferenced, uh, they would let it go, but they wouldn't give it such a good mark. Some people talked about 50% of the work. So there was, there was a, a real debate about what constituted cheating and at what level uh, it would be put into the procedures. And then the imposition of penalties. Now, for a law student a nursing student, uh, accounting. There are a whole range of careers where a finding of academic misconduct on a student file has huge implications. So the penalty of failing the work might not be the real penalty. The real penalty would probably be the record of that on the file to be referred to in future references uh, to professional bodies or elsewhere. Now, this is the thing, and I'm sure you all find this yourselves. It's very hard to get people to agree about what is plagiarism, what is academic misconduct. We all feel we know, we talk about, you know, I, I heard, um, you know, discussions about uh, plagiarism and what it is. Everybody feels they know what it is. There's an assumption somehow that we know what it is, except that when a group of people gather together, and I've done this on a number of occasions myself, and give them a couple of examples, very, it's, it's quite unusual to get everyone to agree about which piece of work represents the plagiarism. Um, what some staff would consider plagiarism, other staff just think poor academic practice um, or just poor referencing or academic naivety or um, whatever. Now, there was, uh, in 2007, this was a very interesting uh, large-scale project that looked at the penalties. And there are across higher education institutions, a range of penalties that go from no further action to expulsion. So the range of penalties is very wide. And there is guidance given in some institutions as to when these penalties should be invoked. But what this research didn't look at was the extent to which these are actually applied in practice. And what our work did was we looked at how staff were divining plagiarism and we actually looked at how it was recorded and how many cases were reported and recorded. Now, uh, just to go back, um, I'm, I'm just, uh, I've just outlined some of the issues that we, that we wanted to look at, but for, when, I start, when we started this research, um, there was this fear of this exponential growth in plagiarism in UK law schools. And um, 
one of the people we interviewed for the research was a man who, um, in Nottinghamshire, I think he's based, and he told us that he had 500 people working for him providing law essays. This was just about law. And they were part-time lecturers. They were trainee solicitors. And he told us that one trainee solicitor who was earning about £28,000 as a trainee actually earned over £30,000 with him writing essays. There were students at universities uh, writing writing the essays as a way of, of earning money. So there must be a huge amount of this going on. If you look at the websites, the number of websites that are offering these things for sale. But what some... I was just saying to Paul earlier, I thought when he was introducing me, he was going to say Vera is an expert on plagiarism. I go like that. (laughs) Particularly when I started to do this first, I was speaking at a conference and I was telling a man something that I discovered. He said, oh, Vera, not the plagiarism again. And it's always the women who are tracking it down and hunting it out, (laughs) which wasn't, (laughs) you know, there was a certain amount of truth in it, but uh, that that wasn't the the, the point. It was that um, not many, not not too many uh, universities were using uh, Turnitin, and I can talk about what people told us about that, but because I have this reputation of being an expert on plagiarism, anytime anybody sees anything interesting, they send, send it to me. And I was sent this link last week. Somebody sent me this link to say, this is the latest thing available to students. So they can turn it in proof their work by going onto this website. And it's actually quite good. I got on and I had a look. And uh, if the student, what it does is it, it rephrases the work. So, you know, they can, they can submit what they've copied and it'll be rephrased. And if it's not referenced or if it's in, incorrectly referenced, for a fee, they'll put in the correct reference. <laughs> so we've all the 97% uh, of universities paying a fortune, staff tracking it down, and then the students going on this. I think it's about 20 quid. But... Um, so there must be a lot of it going on. And really, you know, I, I, I'll go back to why I started. If there's not fairness and consistency in how it's dealt with, it's really re- leading to great injustice. But um, one of the things that I thought I'd mention, around the time I was deciding to do this project and I was asking a number of my colleagues if they were interested, there was a lot of um, media attention about the quality and standards in UK higher education. And a couple of the headlines that came from the Times Higher uh, were interesting to me. Now, in one institution, a new university... They were really trying to define what it is. They were trying to get consistency in their staff and say, you know, when do we put this into a formal process? And they hit on the figure, say 20% was what they came up with. And if a member of staff found 20% of the work was not properly referenced, that they would put it into a, a process so the student would have a hearing. And that hit the, head, uh, the, the newspapers with uh, 
20% go free, you know. It, it put a spin on it that the institution was accepting 20% plagiarism, which really was unfair. The university was really trying to deal with it. The other one was a couple of weeks or months later. Uh, cheats, big headline, cheats can re- resit for a fee. Now, that institution, I have a friend, so I knew very well what the position was. And the position is, if a student fails a piece of work for academic reasons, they're entitled to a a retake. And they were trying to impose a penalty on a cheating student. They were saying that if a student failed for plagiarism, they would have to pay to resit. It was being imposed as a a deterrent or a way of... um, penalising the students. But the spin in the headlines was that, uh, you know, for a fee, that, that, that they could... Um, it was almost like a misrepresentation of, of the reality. But the final thing that impacted on our work was in the University of Hertfordshire, they had a conference on plagiarism. And they have a whole department... Not, no, that's an exaggeration... I'm getting warm like my mother with the exaggeration. But they, they, they had a whole department, a, a, a person, a fairly senior person with responsibility. And what they were trying to do is to get consistency. That one person who would be familiar with the penalties and what different staff were doing. But they had a conference. And um, a member of staff at the conference, they were talking about levels of detection, and the issue was how some modules never seem to have any plagiarism, and yet other modules are reporting uh, high numbers of instances. And this member of staff at the University of Hertfordshire made a comment to the effect, well, a staff could be bothered to, to notify us or to look it up. You know, she was making the point that some staff couldn't be bothered And the following week, that appeared all in the headlines in the Times Higher because there was somebody from the Times Higher in the audience. And again, it really wasn't reflecting the reality. It wasn't a case where the staff weren't doing it, but that's how it came out. So what we discovered was when we were doing our research that people were very reluctant to talk about it openly. And the only way that we could um, get responses was we guaranteed absolute anonymity and confidentiality. And we said that no institution would be named or no information would be given to uh, associate any of the, 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 um, the comments with any institution. And after the first interview, when we realised that when we got on to the touchy issue of what really happens in your institution, people just stopped. And we decided that we we wouldn't record or anything, we just took notes um, from from then onwards. Now, what we do, we we, we, we had... um, I've just written it down because I I couldn't remember the the number. We, we, We... We did this, we looked at institutional approaches to plagiarism, but we actually picked law schools uh, to look at what happens in practice. But um, that could be replicated in any department, I'm sure, uh, of what happens. But we had sent questionnaire to 90 law schools. And what we wanted to know was, we asked what kind of, what 
kind, examples of plagiarism. We gave a list of examples. Do, do they occur? We tried to find out the frequency with which they occurred, and we tried to find out um, whether such examples would be treated as major or minor instances. And we had um, 58 responses to the questionnaire. Now, it was difficult looking at the questionnaire to make any distinction between old and new universities because it was anonymous. But what was clear was um, everything uh, that was considered to be minor was treated informally. But there was a huge difference in what was from the respondents as to what constituted a major or a minor incident of plagiarism. And as I said, most of the, the, the minor cases went through uh, an informal procedure. Now, what we did find when we, t when we spoke to the staff, both at old and at new universities, was that everyone was really concerned about the issue and everybody was trying to do something about it. People were trying to look at varying their methods of assessment and a lot of effort is going into um, supporting students when they come into university in proper referencing the sources and how to cite um, the information they use. Now, we went around and we talked to people and we asked them things like... Um, we, gave them, we asked them, would they describe what would be a minor incident of plagiarism? What percentage? And people were very reluctant. Once we got into percentages, people were very reluctant to quantify in that way. Some of them talked about 20... Some of them said, well, 10%. If 10% of the work in an essay is um, plagiarised or it's not properly referenced, we would treat that as plagiarism. Others said... 10%, but they would view 10% of the work in a couple of sentences here or there, different to a block of work at 10%. And others said up to 50%. So there was a huge variation in the quantity of work that would amount to um, a finding of uh, suspected plagiarism that would go into a formal process. The interesting thing was... Um, that we hadn't really considered that the institution where there was a 50% requirement before they would deal with it in a formal way was that their institution requires um, that it's proved beyond reasonable doubt that the student has plagiarised, which means that, like criminal law, you know, that the, the, the prosecutor, the university, would have to show beyond reasonable doubt that the student plagiarised this work. And they needed to have at least 50% of the work, not the student's own work, before they could do that. And that's a very big burden of proof. But we realised that that's the approach a number of institutions take, which is the criminal law burden of proof, other institutions then take the civil law where it's on the balance of probabilities and the burden of proof on the institution is much less. But what it did show is that the, 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 um, 
the factors that are influencing the people who are making the decisions in about how this has to be proved. Um, we, we, we found that quite interesting. But again, before we even look at individual discretion, you know, we're looking at um, a, a, a striking variation in how plagiarism is defined. Now, a lot of universities um, have their regulate. We, we looked at all of the regulations and the plagiarism policies in all of these institutions. So when we were going into the interview, we knew what the institutional policy said and what the institutional policy uh, provided. So, for example, um, some institutions said that if it's shown that the student submitted the work of another as the, the student's own work, um, that was plagiarism. And they did that on the basis that in the first year, they gave students in an early module a very good grounding in referencing and warnings of what plagiarism is. And then if the student, they, they submitted the work, they didn't take, accept reasons like they didn't understand, they didn't realise they were plagiarising, that was it, it was strict liability, you know, they go... 35 miles an hour and 30 miles down, there's no argument. And they treated it like that. Then, as I've said, in other cases, uh, they, they treated it really like a criminal trial. For example, the module leader who spotted the plagiarism wouldn't be involved in any hearing. All that evidence had to be passed to somebody else who had no involvement with the marking of the work or, or dealing with the work. Um, what we also found was that um, people told us about, um, you know, we asked about the policy and they described the policy, but where the policy was considered to be very harsh, people exercised individual discretion. And that's where the real injustice comes in, you know, where individuals are operating essentially outside of the, the policy, which... Um, they, they may have found, or they, they found was too harsh. Now, this is, I've just talked about this. It's the issue about the burden of proof, different burdens of proof um, applied. Now, some, we were talking about, uh, as I've said, it was law staff we interviewed. And um, some people said that the consequences of finding of a finding of academic misconduct on a law student's file was so serious that staff were inclined to deal with it in the marking and have a quiet word with the student, individual members of staff, to warn them that this might happen again. Or that um, if the, the institutional policy uh, imposed a very harsh penalty, like one institution told us that if a final year student fails a module because they've plagiarised, they'll have to retake that module for a capped mark. And quite often that can lead to a drop in the classification if they're a borderline 2-1. But as well as that, if the student has plagiarised, uh, sorry, has failed the module for plagiarism, they have to be treated worse than a student who's just failed for academic reasons. So they drop a degree classification. So some of the penalties are quite severe. And what's happening is that staff, realising this, are not really putting it into the process.
So what happens there, of course, as we know, if it's not ever put into the process, the academic is not, misconduct is not recorded on the student's file for uh, reporting to the professional bodies or elsewhere. Other reasons that people gave us for, for example, not using Turnitin. Some, um, some staff told us that um, they have institutional deadlines for the turnaround of marked work. And of course, with the National Student Survey, and that being one of the questions for students, how prompt feedback, uh, the institutions are pushing for a quick turnaround. But the staff are saying, if you've got to really go into the, in, into turn it in and uh, look at, at, at the referencing, it can take a lot of time. And there's just not time to meet the institutional deadline to do that. So they don't use it. Um, other uh, factors were that staff in some universities now are under such pressure to produce research that dealing with these cases in a formal way takes so much time, you know, away from other, other things they have to do. Now, what is striking again? There is no evidence of plagiarism being monitored, the levels of plagiarism across uh, modules or within institutions. And there's much disagreement about what may or what may not be academic misconduct. But one of the things that we found was um, that the Times Higher did a very big survey in 2006, I think it was, the dates in the article. And they asked students at old universities and at new universities about plagiarism. And they took the approach of saying to the student, do you know of anyone who has plagiarised? So they weren't directly asking the student. They, the, the, the research showed that there was no difference between uh, the levels of plagiarism taking place with students at the old or the new universities. The difference, though, is that most of the reporting of plagiarism and academic misconduct is being done by the new universities. Uh, they have, you know, staff, departments, they have a lot of systems for dealing with it. And it's because, it seems to us anyway, that the older universities really have a different approach in that, first of all, they, they treat it like... Um, you know, more like the, uh, uh, the approach of criminal prosecutions. It's, it's, it's quite serious and it's taken in that way. And they see poor referencing as really poor academic practice and they see it as a skills deficiency which they try to build up in the students. Whereas it, it seems that in the newer universities uh, the, the reporting is, um, and, and dealing with it, it is a much more formal approach. Um, just around, at about 2008, I just noticed, I mean, I have examples of, of in there of uh, cases. When I did this research, there, there was a website who had, under the Freedom of Information Act, gone to all law schools in England and asked about how many cases of plagiarism have you had last year. And 
most of the cases in the hundreds were in the new universities. The old universities, four, two, you know, one, very few cases were reported. Uh, And, um, of course, as we keep going back, the consequences of such a finding are so serious for the students. Um, This, I've, I've already referred to this respondent. Now, what, um, for the purposes of um, today's talk, um, I thought might be interesting is that um, the, it's not the JCQ now, it's the, the awarding body, sorry, it's, it's, oh, it is, is it? I, I thought I got it wrong. But what's their approach? And if a student signs a declaration, an A-level student signs a declaration, um, that the awarding body has to be notified if there's a finding of academic misconduct. However, where the declaration is not signed, uh, the awarding uh, body doesn't have to be informed. But they give a bit of guidance and they say, well, if a student has been found to have committed plagiarism and the awarding body doesn't need to be notified, uh, that advice to find out how their own institution records this. For example, that same student might be suspected of misconduct in another department or by another member of staff. But we see, again, it all goes down to this, this really um, position whereby uh, it's the recording of these things that really matters. It's how they're, how they're recorded. And um, that's really all I wanted to say at this point. But I would, um, it would be interesting maybe to have a discussion and I can give you some of the other things that came out of it after that, that um, outline of what we did and what we found and why we did it. Anyway, thank you for your time and um, I hope it's been useful. Thank you very much. Okay. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.